0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Life's a Beach. If you like watching big waves like I do, you will enjoy my in-depth chat with award-winning cinematographer and director Tim Benython. Tim specialises in footage of big wave surfing from all around the world. Lifeguard Clint Clipper-Kidmans joins me for the beach banner to talk about his experiences riding big waves. And now let's listen to the legend himself, Tim Benython. Today in the Beach Shack we've got uh, Tim Benyth and, and uh, he's uh, amazing, got a great story. He's uh, a cinematographer and also a director. He's got some great big wave surfing movies out. So welcome, Tim.
1: Thanks for having us, Hopper.
0: Mate, firstly, we'll uh, tell us where it all started, where you hail from and, and how you got into the surfing.
1: Well, I suppose, you know, um, from day one I was um, pretty much born next to the beach. My parents had a house down in Adelaide in the uh, in the city of Adelaide at uh, Tennyson Beach, you know, but back in the early days, uh, well, of course, there's no real surfing at Tennyson Beach uh, along the coast of Adelaide. It's in the Gulf there. But, you know, I think the one thing about the ocean is that once you have a relationship with it, you start to see other horizons. And it's only when I moved to Sydney that um, surfing became, you know, everything that meant to me because it was a, a whole new play thing, you know, and. And at the same time, I was into uh, photography and and I was getting into filming and all that. So the the crossroads there being the ocean and filming came together. But that was when I was in my early teens when we moved to Sydney from Adelaide. But yeah, just day one was pretty much the first. uh, I'm sure I was crawling in my nappies out of the back door and crawling down to the beach. And uh, mum would just let me do whatever I did. Uh, I remember clearly, you know, catching little fish in a milk bottle and putting the the uh, the bread in the milk bottle and throwing it in the canals that the tide would leave and there'd be always a school of like miniature fish, you know, about six to eight inches long and I'd be catching fish that way. And then once I get older, I you know, I got myself a spear gun and I had all my best buddies down there. We we just I I quite honestly can say that I had the best playground a kid could ever want when you in your first ten years, you know, we had the ocean one side and then about 200, well, about half a K up the road was the sand hills, which goes to lugs north, you know, to Port Adelaide. And then on the other side of the where we were living was the swamps, which is now called West Lakes. And the swamps were, um, you know, like just what it is, swamps. And there was a property there, but there was three different playgrounds. And, uh, you know, it just, it was so good for a kid to grow up there. Before technology became what it is now where, you know, the kids these days are all stuck indoors looking at either their phone or their computer.
0: Yeah. You know, you said you moved to uh, Sydney. I know you lived around where I'm from, you know, close around Bronte. Yep. You know, Tamarama and Bondi there. And yep. what? Yep. What? How was that experience? Were you starting to kick off the filming and, and photography? Yeah, well, that's time? right.
1: I went to Cranbrook. As I said, the surf was like straight away. As soon as I saw Bondi Beach, I was catching the bus to Bondi from Paddington, my father had an art gallery there. And so we went to Cranbrook and I mixed it up with some of the, uh, the surfing fraternity at Cranbrook, including Greg Weber and John Weber and those guys. And, you know, sitting on the wall at Bondi, you know, watching all the people go by, you know, that yeah, was pretty yeah, yeah. unique. And at that time we used to hang out a lot with um, various people. And there was a, a guy with the golden tonsils who's, who's uh, had some nice little stepdaughters that we used to hang out with. And, <laughs> at and he had a movie camera sitting on the floor at uh, his house, and it just seemed to sit there gathering dusk. And I, I hit up John and I said, John, you know that movie company you, you got over there on the floor hasn't done much work. You know, is there any chance I could borrow it? And uh, he said, Tim, you can have it if you make sure you do something with it. And so that was the beginning. I went straight down to Bondi Beach and started shooting Shane Horan. And yep. I remember, you know, going when I was at school. Um, Sh- uh, Greg Weber and and Shane had a company called Horan Weber Boards. And uh, before Greg became who he is and they were quite a little business entity. They knew where they were going, and Shane wanted to become a professional surfer. And so really the first person I was really going down to the beach to shoot was Shane Horan, and that was in 1976. So that's going back, and it all started to grow over time. And, um, you know, we lived in Sydney until I was about 17, and then when I finished school, I went back to Adelaide because Mum and Dad had a very strong relationship with Adelaide. And uh, so Dad ended up living back in the... uh, the hills and uh, I lived in Adelaide for about another two three years and at that time I was really into surfing and discovering what it was like to travel and uh, take that movie camera so I was going to York Peninsula and to the west coast but after a while I got sick of Adelaide again and um, ended up coming back to Sydney and got back into filming surfing and uh, ended up going to Hawaii in 1979 uh, with my mate Mike Wallenberg for the very first time and I started filming the North Shore and and at that time, I uh, hit up my mate Peter Victorson, Punk, uh, who had a surf shop in Adelaide called Top of Tap Surf Shop, and this was in 1981, and I said, Punk, hey, give me some money, and I'll, I'll go over to Bell's and shoot Bell's, and I'll shoot the surf about, and I'll come back, and we'll show some surf movies at the local pub and see how it goes. And yeah. luckily, Bell's with the best Bell's ever, you know, 20-foot, they will call it 10 to 15-foot Hawaiian, and but that was 20-foot faces for sure, and... And shooting on the camera I had was a, a Canon 1014 4 with a bit of a lens on it. And because the waves were so big, they still filled the screen. And uh, that was the beginning of my professional surf movie career because at that time I could, uh, you know, we edited the Super 8 film together and uh, we put a bit of an ad in the uh, local newspaper and we had a, a crowd of about a mile long sort of lining up to come to see my show because everybody had heard the bells. It was amazing. And uh, so I realised that on that evening when we showed the films I think it was about six o'clock session we had probably two three hundred people paying five bucks a ticket and i went hang on this is this is pretty good i can travel the world and <laughs> and and shit surfing and um you know literally 40 something years later i'm still doing what i love and going off and shooting these amazing waves and and then bringing them back to a captive audience audience in a auditorium which is pretty much why would you want to do anything different it's too much fun
0: yeah it's it's amazing uh Story you've got, and, and just touching on that, back in Bells, I think you nailed it because you're saying the waves are great at Bells, and also mm. Simon Anderson brought out the thruster, and I think he won that contest. Is that correct? Is that was that in the same? Period? Yeah, that's
1: right. That was the, the pretty much the birth of modern day surfing as we see it now. You know, I mean, obviously it's advanced a lot since 1981, but yeah, on that day there was really only two people on the, the outside that outside, the ones the single fin, and that was Mark Richards on the 20 and then Simon Anderson on a thruster. And, and so he showed the world on that day that when you're riding 15-foot waves, that you're going to get a lot more control coming off the bottom than coming off the top on a 15-foot wave than you are on a single fin. And so they they proved to the world that that was the future. And, you know, MR was on that on that uh, twin fin, and that was definitely helping him out. But the, the thruster really came of age on that day. It was the perfect example of, of what it could do and that really made people start to think maybe this is the future of course within you know months you know everybody was trying to ride on a So even on that swell event though uh people going out of their way to borrow simon's board and uh you know it was just um, a unique uh, time in in the surfing history and i was there to, to document it which was kind of like a one of those significant moments in your career when there's a bit of a message in it that you know maybe this is where you should be you know this is to document surfing and big wave surfing and people on these boards. I mean, it hasn't changed a lot. You know, I mean, obviously they're doing a lot more tricks in the water than they than they are. But you know, it's definitely um, a unique environment that I've been in throughout time. I've seen it all change in that time, and um, I couldn't think of another job that would be more beneficial or, or satisfying uh, than the job I'm in.
0: So you think that was the that time was yeah, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do as a career, pretty much.
1: Yeah, you know, I think once I went started going to Hawaii, and if I said I went to Hawaii in 79, then, you know, Bells was, that was, I think, more than anything, was a hobby, you know, and that's what happens in your world, you know, you, a hobby turns into a profession, you know, and because your hobby and so passionate about your hobby, you know, like going to Hawaii, surfing the waves, taking your camera over there, uh, and then once I started, you know, I actually saw a payday on, you know, after that 81 Bells, I thought, hang on, you know, there's a real message in all this. And, um, you know, I can live a really exciting world, traveling to unique locations and, uh, and and documenting this stuff and then bringing it back to a captive audience. And, you know, back in the early 80s, was, there was no such thing as a VHS player, let alone a DVD and let alone online, you know, I mean, yeah. it just – the world just continually changes and so back then you know the only thing we had was like tracks magazine and and surfing world and you know if you had an event of the proportions of bells then you'd see it in the tracks but that would be maybe three months later so that's as good as it got or you'd see maybe a, a 20 seconds uh in black and white on the news and then everybody would be hearing about you hear about bells how at easter you know like they had amazing waves down there and you know people would be desperate to see that stuff and if it That was always my ticket to ride, was to to document something and then to show it pretty much hot off the press. That's what people want to see these days, you know. And fortunately for me, I think down the track now, you look at Big wave Surfing and going to Nazaré, you know, a lot of these places are now getting um, shown live on the internet, you know. So you can can have like um, Red Bull or you can have Surfline and you can actually watch what's happening live. And of course, it will just be a matter of time before these big wave swell events will be streamed with, it, <clears throat> with the yeah. interviews and with stock footage. There'll be whole shows that'll be, you know, like Next Time Mavericks, it's going to be 30 foot, you know, guaranteed they're going to be live broadcasts of just a swell event. You don't need to have a competition. You just have these things being broadcast and maybe the the guy that rides the biggest wave gets voted by the people watching. Yep. And, you know, there's money to be made in that space and surfers get their exposure internationally, live by uh, watching it streamlined and for me that makes it a bit more difficult because i document a a big day in surfing and then i i get the best shots and i put it together in a film and then i present you know you can see that a lot of these swell events are turning into almost like sporting events you know like that Nazareth the the piahi swell from last week i mean if we could have watched that live and we had you know a commentary team and you know like the wsl have done and they've been talking about doing it. It's just All that's just around the corner, I reckon. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's gonna, they're going to turn big wave surfing into sporting events, even if it's just free surf, you know. And yeah. um, that's the future. Talking
0: about the big waves, basically back then, the 80s and 90s, I mean, 15, 20 foot, you know, Hawaii, Waimea Bay, Sunset, that was the where everyone thought that was the biggest waves you could ride. So the late 90s, yep. you were given a tip about a surf break in Hawaii, which was nicknamed Jaws.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Jaws, like back in those days, even going back further, I think, like I said my earlier, my first trip 79, you know, like Hawaii was the only place on the planet that had big waves. Like we didn't really think that big waves existed like what we see now. Mm. Um, when you look at some of the opportunities of where these big waves break, you go, geez, they're Hawaiian style waves. And, and so you'd only go to Hawaii to see the big waves. And then you'd come back to Australia and, and, you know, you'd have Kira, Bell's Beach. And these these waves are a contest, you know, rippable up and top, bottom turn, top turn, you know, cut back, barrel, all that kind of stuff. But Hawaii had that dramatic kind of like, you know, Waimee Bay on a 30-foot day, like, was the, was you know, like that was as big as it got, you know. And none of us even knew that there was other places in Hawaii, you know, Hawaii that were even bigger than Wyoming Bay. And, of course, so I had this kind of friendship with a photographer who's very famous, Dan Merkel. And Dan was a similar photographer, photographer and um, he had a pretty good name for himself because he worked on the big Wednesday film. He's done a lot of Hollywood features, well-known for shooting in the water and shooting with a 35mm camera. And if you've seen some of the rigs that he carried around, you know, like unbelievable in the size, you know, of the housing, the camera and the housing and all that. But he he said, Tim, you know, like, if you really do want to shoot big waves, there's another place you should be thinking about. Don't worry about Wyoming Bay. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, there is another wave that's even bigger than Wyoming Bay. And so at that time, I was buying a movie camera from him and he had a bunch of these, what they call Millican movie cameras, 16 millimeter high-speed movie cameras that could shoot up to 200 frames a second. And had a unique way of um, threading the film through the uh, the camera. And I really needed to learn how to do that because if you didn't load the camera properly, the camera could turn into a real problem. And so I bought this camera from from Dan and and he was saying, you're not leaving the apartment, this is in, on the North Shore in Hawaii, until you've got this loading the camera up. But, you know, while you're doing it, I'll just tell you about this place and you should go. And I said, well, tell me about it. Where is it? Well, it's on... Maui and it's a place called Jaws and I said yeah okay well what do you reckon he said mate Wyoming Bay is great but Jaws is mind-boggling how big it can be and so I said well will you um, take me with you next time you go and I said well yeah no worries and anyway um, so I got the camera sorted and I had never put a roll of film in the camera um, until that you know that trip to Maui when that finally dawn. And I'm, I can't remember after how long it was, maybe a week or two later. And I actually didn't meet up with Dan. I ended up having to wing my way into to, to Piahi, not knowing where to go, how to do it. I ended up at the airport, waited for Dan to pick me up, didn't pick me up. So I just had to wing my way to uh, Piahi. But I had it. I was stubborn and I really needed to get there. And so I got myself a, uh, a lift to the local backpackers and then Turned the backpacking people about this place called piaji jaws they showed me on a map how to get there and then i talked to a couple of backpackers who had a car to drive me there the next morning after telling them this is going to be the biggest wave you're ever going to see you've got to come I'm hoping that they drive me there and uh so i rocked up in these um pineapple fields and um, trudged my way over the paddocks through the pineapple fields until i could get to the coast okay. and then i got to the edge of the coast and I could still not hear it. I could see, I could hear it, but I couldn't see it. And then I cut my way through all this foliage and there it was, Pihi in all this glory and not a soul around. And I was going, oh my God, like, this must be this wave. You know, it's a huge wave out here, but there was no one surfing the place. Anyway, cut a long story short, Laird Hamilton, Dan Moore, all the, the big wave surfers turned up uh, about two hours later and I had my camera set up. I pumped um, about four rolls of 400 foot, uh, foot reels in the uh the camera i had no issues with the camera and i created a surf video that was pretty much you know like i know that it was probably the biggest selling surf video at the time and um literally sold h- over a hundred thousand copies quicksilver even picked it up and uh, then it got ripped off by some blake uh called bob casley i don't know where he bl- apparently um he ended up overseas and um ended up putting it in two dollar boxes and uh that was pretty much the biggest selling video of all time, biggest Wednesday. And and I also got footage from various other cameramen from the North Shore because obviously the North Shore and the outer side outside logs was pumping and and it was a unique day in history. And I made my biggest Wednesday film out of it. And uh that was VHS back then and it was definitely uh something that got me going big time in surf videos.
0: Yeah I remember watching it, it as a Crazy, crazy. First time seeing waves that big because no mm. one's ever seen them like that before. It was like the old cartoons, you know. You used to see the wave and the little cartoon surfer. Yep. It, it was just it looked yep. exactly like that, but it, it was real life.
1: I mean, you had guys like Ross Clark Jones and T. Ray, and you know, and that was on the North Shore of Oahu around log cabins. Ken Bradshaw, you know. I think that Shane was, was there um, too. Was Shane Shane was over Shane there? Warren. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it was a real treat to go to Piaji for the very first time and uh, what's been pulling my hair out of seeing what's been going on over there lately, and we're stuck in Australia because if I would have seen that on the charts, I would have done Mavericks and then Piaji and then I probably would have been coming home now because I know that I probably couldn't have done any better than what I've just seen. But, yeah, that's the world we're living in right now. Just hopefully we'll be able to travel overseas sometime later this year.
0: Yeah, hopefully we can get over there soon. The uh, latest movie you've got out that's the big wave project and it's been five years in the making so yeah tell us a bit about that it's got a whole lot of big wave breaks all around the yeah. world you've put in there
1: yeah well you know that's what I, I was saying before you know big waves is um my forte now It's like kind of um shooting surfing for so long you know over 42 years you know i did my my hard yards i followed the asp world tour i was shooting for quicksilver a lot a lot of the events and, you know, that was the wick surfing that we see on the WSL World Tour, you know, like it's bottom turns, cutbacks, barrels, big aerials. You know, after a while, like, that's good, but it's so live now, you know, the WSL, are broadcasting, this stuff. And, and you know, it's, it's a sporting event, like I was saying before. But, you know, for me, it's always been the captive audience in a cinema, you know, into a, into a pub or a club. You, you put the stuff on a screen and people just go, wow, you know, that just it's a whole different league and you don't need to understand you're getting points for an aerial or you're getting points for a long barrel. People just see and they're in awe of seeing Mother Nature unload. And so my, my common term about how everybody sees what I do is that the, uh, the ocean is the star and the surfers are there to enhance it. You know, really, without those big waves, people wouldn't be so, like, in awe, you know. But when you see a dot racing down a phase, you suddenly realise that, you know, that is a huge lump of water. And and so, you know, with the world that we live in, we, we've we got to see all these amazing spots. So I've picked everything over the years of where I want to be. And, you know, luckily there's a southern hemisphere and a, and a northern hemisphere. So when the southern hemisphere is pumping, which is winter, the northern hemisphere is sleeping, you know. So I, I find Sydney the perfect opportunity to, to spread my wings in the southern hemisphere, so I can go to the right in West Australia. I can go to Tassie for ship terms, I can go to Fiji for cloud break. I can go to Chopur in Tahiti. So all those those places are in a you know one airline ticket to each one of those places. And of course, we have some pretty amazing ways here in New South Wales, including Cape Solander, for example. So you know I have these, um, and they're all different, unique locations, and some. A more jet ski orientated and, you know, being a tow wave uh, where the waves just break so violently and so quickly that very difficult to paddle into. Hopefully that will change in the future, but obviously very dangerous. But, you know, so, and then the Northern Hemisphere has obviously, you know, your piahi And of course my new home that I've discovered over the last six, seven years now is Piaje, uh, is Nazare in, in Portugal. And when I went there, for the first time, it was like within seconds I went straight away. I went, man, this place is another beast and it's so unique and it's so powerful and it's so captive that I said to myself straight away that this is where I want to be during the winters from now on. And uh, and so Nazare has become my go-to place from October to March of every winter and then to come home and then to get you know back into the uh, – Southern Hemisphere, being Shipsterns, Salander, uh, and, of course, all the other spots that light up in the Southern Hemisphere in autumn and winter. So, yeah, I've got it all sorted, but, you know, COVID's definitely stuck a, a pole in the spokes and uh, really stopped me from doing what I want to do. So just it's real frustrating not being able to to do what I love to do, and that's capture the best waves in the world, and but hopefully we'll be back sooner than later.
0: Yeah, so, Tim, with the... Uh filming of all these massive waves it'd be great to give an insight to the listeners on because we sit back and watch this amazing footage but to know yep. how you get that footage like you're in there amongst the you know 50 foot waves you're shooting it from the cliffs like how's it all come together
1: well there's two things i have to take into account and um, the first thing is i'm a one-man band really i, I tried to do it all and because this is my business and so I don't have a budget where someone like Red Bull is giving me 50 grand of production. You know, I, I have to go at my expense and set myself up. I have to utilize my contacts. The logistics in, in chasing as well is huge from actually having the right camera gear. And in my position, I want to be able to shoot with the best possible camera to give me the best possible images in a cinematic location, like in a cinematic situation. So if I'm going to show a film on the big screen, then you need a good quality camera with a lot of data. And ideally for me, I've decided that the red camera gives me that high frame rate with a high quality, high dense data rate. So I'm going to get the best quality images, but unfortunately it comes, you know, it's quite heavy, um, a water housing and uh, the right lenses, all these kind of things come into play. And so you really got to make sure that you're, best set up to be not only safe but also to give you the best images so the best images will come from shooting in the lineup it's more unique anyone can shoot from the land and uh you know like i've spoken to lots of people let's talk about Nazare. you know Nazare, you don't miss anything although depending on where you shoot from if you're shooting from land you're going to miss ways if you go too low if you go too high it doesn't look like it's as big when you're looking up Looking down, you're looking more down. But Nazare, you're going to get everything if you have the right position. But it's not going to be unique. You're going to have maybe 10 other people shooting the same angle and getting the same image almost from where you're shooting on the land. So to get that unique angle and being a surf film cinematographer, I want to get a unique angle. And, of course, the water angle is always the most unique, but it also is the most dangerous. And you're going to miss things But if you can get that one amazing ride of a 60, 70-foot wave, then everything's worth all the panic and the being scared. Um, You know, I mean, it's firstly, you need a good driver. So you need a guy that's going to drive the ski and put you in the perfect spot. He's got to understand the ocean. You just can't take out anyone out there and expect that he's going to be able to get you around safely and you're going to get the shot. And it's a real art to get that driver. To have a driver, have a, a really, and you've got to have a good ski. So the ski not going to break down. You've got to make sure that that ski can't break down. You don't want to be stuck in a position where you're going to fall off the ski because you're caught inside, you're in the wrong position. I've fallen off the ski four times at Nazare, and I tell you what, the heart rate goes up. Okay. You know, it's, it's a scary situation. I've never been run over by a wave there. I had my camera lost, but we got it back before it hit the rocks that happened last season I was there. And uh, yeah, like the bottom line is that's so much water moving there that you, you don't want to um, fall off in the lineup. So that's Nazare. And I'm starting to think at my age of 62, do I really want to put myself in in harm's way to get the worst case scenario? And so I kind of put a blind eye to it. I don't really take it in too much. I don't want to. Because I think the worst thing in big wave surfing, if you're a cameraman, is panic. You can't afford to panic. And so you need to be, become part of it and to really uh, enjoy the opportunity and be excited by it. But the panic you can't afford to have. But I'm sure that if the worst case scenario happens, then the panic could easily set in. But rather than go out there being really scared, go out there being really excited. And um, So I have a kind of way of dealing with it. But yeah... I Uh, You know, I'm going to I'm going to have to be careful. Uh, And next time I go back, I'm going to be a little bit more selective on the days I go out. I'd love to be out there on the biggest days. I've been out there in swells of around 70 feet, but haven't been in swells of the bigger. And sometimes they say that those bigger swells are actually even more safer because there's a bigger space between the period. You know, so they're not. If you want a short period, meaning the swells coming quicker. Then um, that's more dangerous, more more volatile, and you think shit can happen in that kind of space. So you want a big period. You want to have a really good driver. You want to have a, a good ski that's going to get you out of the zone and keep keep you safe. But you know things can happen in the lineup. But that's Nazare, and that's probably the, that is the worst and hardest place to shoot. But most other places, thank God, they have a channel. And so the idea is to get your driver as close as you can to the action, and not too close, of course. But just having that channel gives you the opportunity that if a big set comes, you can zip out of the space like at Shipsterns or the right or any of these other waves, even chopper. you know. chopper is easy because you have a boat driver yep. and you just got to be careful um, on all the other boats and that's the problem with chopper is sometimes there's so many boats in the lineup that you can get either blocked or you, and so you might miss that shot because another boat's in front of you or you're going to be Caught inside, the worst-case scenario, and the wave will break um, on the boat and you end up on the reef and flip the boat. I mean, I've seen it happen a couple of times. I've I've seen no-one killed in that position. But, yet that's the only thing you've got to worry about. But but the beauty of shooting in choppers, you you can uh, shoot with a camera and a rain jacket and keep that camera dry with the rain jacket, sealing the camera. But, of course, if you're in the water, that's no good. You need a water housing, and that's when you need – really good housing and i have a custom housing for both swimming and when i'm on a jet ski and when i'm on a jet ski i have it on my shoulder and when i'm swimming i have it in front of my face and uh, yeah it's all experience and um and you know i think i've learned over the 40 years what it takes
0: mate over the 40 years are you just blown away on the size of the waves that these surfers are riding
1: Yeah, well, you know, um, with Nazareth it's all about how big the waves can be, you know. And uh, if you have the biggest wave to come in, then, you know, it's the objective of two-thirds of those guys that surf it to ride the biggest wave ever and get into the Guinness Book World Record of riding the biggest wave. As Rodrigo Cusher has the uh, the number one um, big wave, uh, the biggest wave ever ridden, which was 80 feet. And then there's been a few other waves that have ridden since and during uh, that are similar sizes, like Andrew Cotton rode a wave which was, I reckon, as big as Rodrigo Kocher, but it was a bit more of a longer drop. It wasn't as vertical, and that was in October, and they're calling that the biggest score ever recorded in October uh, of last year, which I couldn't be there for. And then you've got um, about three other waves that would be close to the record, including Kyle um Axie Mondane, you know, like there's been plenty of guys that are trying to get that big wave. But I think the biggest wave ever surfed there was by, um Hugo Val, but they didn't have the footage to back it up. And that could have been a 100-foot wave, which was, I think, nine uh, 2018. There was a huge swirl. But the, the, it was late, late in the afternoon and the wind was howling offshore and there was so much spray that the camera couldn't see the ride, so it was never determined as the biggest wave ever surfed. and So I would probably say the biggest wave ever surfed there is from Hugo Val, a local guy from Portugal, but then the record's Rodrigo Corsera. He's got the Guinness Book World Record. And, uh, you know, it's all about being at rest and at peace with the ocean and being used to the worst-case scenarios. And, of course, the one thing about big wave surfing is they're a lot more prepared for the worst-case scenario with the inflatable vests and, you know, impact vests on top of that or under that. And so, if you do lose or get run over of a wave of that size, that you'll come up a lot quicker if you didn't have it on. If you didn't have an inflatable vest, if you didn't have an impact vest on, like you kind of got it like a cork around you, then you're not going to come up in a hurry. But by having all these other things, they're a bit more organised for the worst case scenario. And you'll find most big wave surfers are prepared for the worst case scenario, and and you know, and that's why. I think that we haven't really seen anybody die from the sport in the last 10, 15 years. It's because they're a little bit more prepared for the worst-case scenario by having those those things. But, yeah, look, it's. Uh, I think the general public notices a big wave surf by a big wave gladiator than anybody, and that's why the sport is a lot more appealing now than it ever has been. You know, it's, That's why I just can't believe that You know, really at the end of the day I'm the only one that's been really concentrating on big wave surfing uh, more than anyone over the last 20 years, you know, it's been every bit of what I want to shoot is big wave surfing. And, uh, you know, the world's got so many uh, amazing spots. And uh, at the moment, I think we're still only just scratching the surface on what's out there because if you look at all these places, they're right there, you know, like look at Maui, you know, look at Jaws, the brakes right there, you know, like just down the road from O'Keeper and, and then you look at Nazareth it's right off the coast there, you know, like in front of that lighthouse, you know, you look at Chalkwood at the end of the road, you know, that wave is, was pretty obvious, you know, at the end of the road, you could pull up there and you could see this wave unloading and spitting this huge spit out. You know, all these waves, are, you know, Wyoming Bay pipeline, all these waves are so obvious, but the ones we haven't seen are the ones that are out to sea and on other islands, you know, and there's a million islands out there that we haven't really got to see. And it's all about the logistics of getting to these places, you know.
0: Mate, the best big wave surfer, have you got one? Does anyone stand out or there's a few that, that are probably on the same level?
1: Well, if you asked me if there was one big wave surfer you'd want to put in any wave that I document, you'd have to say Kyle Eni. Kyle Eni has got it all and he's um, he's definitely the, uh, the new lead Hamilton. He's definitely the Kelly Slater of big wave surf. You know, he's got everything that makes... Uh, athlete, who he is, you know, he's articulate, he's good looking, he's incredibly talented. He's multi-surf orientated surfer. He can do pretty much anything on any kind of wave. And you put him into a 40 foot wave at Chilcoo, or a 70 foot wave at uh, Nazare, or paddle into a 60 foot wave at Pihi. You know, if you if you had to pick someone, guaranteed, Kyle Lenny is the man. I would be picking out of all those out of that pack.
0: Yep. no, I agree. I think some of the stuff I've seen him do is—he can do everything. It's crazy. Yeah,
1: exactly. One
0: last thing, mate. Who, who's your idol or your hero, and it's probably inspired you the most throughout your life?
1: What in in uh, as a, as an athlete or as a filmmaker a, 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 or
0: anything, anything, whatever stands out. Ah,
1: oh, that's a really difficult question because I've got a, a bunch of idols. I'd have to say. In the film world, you know, George Greeno yep. really in, invigorated me when I went down to the opera house and watched um, Crystal Voyager and he had a, a high-speed movie camera, Millikan camera, on his shoulder pulling into the barrel at Lennox Head and, you know, suddenly, you know, you got that GoPro POV shot of him the tube and I just went, man, you know, like this is amazing what he's doing. You actually feel like you were in the driver's seat back then, you know. And, and so he really inspired me to to get into filming. I've always been a huge fan of Kelly Slater, you know, like, because I've had all the time from day one when he I met him at uh, or Torquay, stayed in the same apartment with him when he was a kid, you know, um, I think he was about 17, when he started touring Australia. And then, you know, there's been a stack of big wave surfers in Australia. You know, you've got to look at the home across guys from and Marty Paradisus, uh, Mikey Brennan, all these guys and ship sterns. And then you've got to take your hat off, like majorly, to Mark Matthews. Yep. Mark's just been such a great ambassador for big wave surfing. That's pretty much all he's been uh, known for, and totally fearless. But unfortunately, paid the price, you know. And that's the injuries he acquired in surfing the biggest waves, you know. But at the same time, he's he's articulate, you know. He he, he knows how it works, and uh, I hope hope we'll see more of him. But you know, like. I Know that he's got a new, you know, he's got a kid that he's right involved with, um, as you should be as a dad and you know, living on the Gold Coast. He, he's you know, loving the whole bringing up the family and looking after the family. And but when we see him out at 60 foot PR here or pulling into 20 foot yeah. the right or ship turns, I don't know, you know, but yeah, they're they're my favorite guys, and of course, you know, the home across guys, uh, sorry, the um. Mick and Dan Corbett at the ride, Bradley Norris. There's a stack of them, Kip Caddy here from Sydney, you know. Um, and, you know, the one thing about I, I like about this whole business of Big Wave Surfing is that they're not rock star surfers like you would get on the WSL World Tour. You know, these guys are unique individuals. They do it more because they love it. You know, they're not making a living out of riding the biggest waves. You know, sure, they're getting captured um, on tape And they're getting their photographs, was in the magazine, but of course online, social media. But do you think they're doing it for the money? And I reckon there's there's only probably about 50 people that make any kind of living out of big wave surfing on this planet. So, you know, it's um, it's an incredible sport. And um, I've been blessed to be part of that. And, um, you know, I've seen a lot of amazing historic moments. And, you know, when I see that historic moment and I document it, I put all the logistics together to be at that spot at that exact time with the camera rolling, everything in focus, and to get that historic moment and to immortalise that surfer, you know, I just get as just a good of thrill and excitement out of documenting that moment than as the surfer does, you know, And, and he relies on me to be able to capture that moment, you know, like Dean Morrison at the right that time, you know, um, Mick Corbett at the right, uh you know. There's been some some historic moments I've documented, and you know, and they just keep coming. So it's always been my job to be able to be, be there that perfect moment and to get that immortalizing shot, and um, then we leave, and um, you, you you feel good about it, you know. And so does the the surface, because I think that they do it because they want to be captured too. They want to be. They want to be seen, you know, catching the best wave of their life and to get that on tape. I don't know many surfers that don't want to be documented in big waves, you know, they they want to be recorded and um and it's a great treat to be able to to show that and share that with the world.
0: Mate, well thanks, Tim, for uh telling us about your forty years and on behalf of the millions and millions of people that watch the footage, you know, it's a it's a privilege to talk to you and I hope uh it's you know the next Big, perfect wave is just around the corner and uh, you can document that and, and continue this uh, magnificent tra- uh, tradition.
1: Yeah, well, at the end of the day, it's all about putting these um, these moments on tape and then uh, making a movie like the Big Wave Project. And so right now we're in the process of making the Big Wave Project 2. So that'll be out later on this year. We've also got a four-part TV show with Foxtel called Swell Chasers and um, working with Luke McNee, who's been working with me for years, making a lot of my videos, and he's directed it. He's from Victoria, and so we've done four locations around the world, Nazare, Mulligmore, uh, Shipsterns, and Cape Salander this year, or last year, and so that will come out on Foxtel later on the year. And then I've got a long-term project, and it's called The Surfing Symphony, and that's about putting uh, live music performing on the stage with... um, some of my favorite locations around the world, the world, and uh, and putting that with a score, you know, classical music, and to really um, bring surfing and music together. So plenty to look forward to, and yeah, you know, I might be 62, but I've certainly got okay. a lot going on right now, and can't wait to keep going and and shooting that great moment.
0: Mate, it's uh, it's been great. Thanks, mate, for uh, for having the chat and and letting us all know that it's not over yet. You've got plenty to come, and I think plenty of people will be excited yeah. about it. Thanks, Hoppa. Thanks for having us. Cheers, Tim. It's been great. What a chat and what a great career Tim has had. Looking forward to seeing what he's got coming up in the future. Now, Clipper joins me for Beach Banner. Okay, welcome, Clipper, into the Beach Shack, mate. Thanks for having me. Anyone out there doesn't know what you've done in your past, if you are a big wave surfer and... uh, I thought we'd touch on some memorable moments there because you've got plenty of them, but what stands out the most in those big, massive waves that you've surfed?
2: Uh, Probably a day that the stars aligned for me and I got to caddy for one of my best friends and also a fellow lifeguard from the Gold Coast, Jamie Mitchell, Jamie Mitchell's been a friend of mine for a close friend for about f- five years or so. Before that, I just knew him as this freak paddleboarder. He won the Molokai Molokai to Oahu paddleboard race, which, if you're not familiar with, it's a 56-kilometer paddle.
0: Yeah, it's around about that, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think He
2: won 10 years in a row. 10 yeah. years in a row, which is the World Championships of paddleboarding. They do that on an 18-foot paddleboard, paddle between two islands in Hawaii. Uh, normally, takes the winner I think about four hours. Yeah, it'd be roughly that. Yeah, four, four hours, four four, four and a half, half hours. So yeah, Jamie's just a an ap- absolute freak. And um, I was actually living in the states at the time, pursuing my triathlon career, gave lifeguarding a break for a little bit, and chasing big waves. And we had a really big swell over at this wave called Mavericks, which is this cold water slab out off the harbour at Half Moon Bay, which is just south of San Francisco. Really big swell, and what typically happens is the swells hit Hawaii and then roll over to Mavericks, but this time around the swell missed Hawaii, hit Mavericks, we had a big couple days there, got a couple really great waves, and then they put the green light on for the Jaws contest, which again for those who don't know is one of the few events that they have on the Big Wave World Tour. To define the world champion of big wave surfing and then we were celebrating the maverick swell in san francisco and then jamie said mate book your ticket it's on (laughs) he goes i want you to come and caddy for me i want you to be out there you'll have your chance you'll have a small window in the morning to get your waves before the contest starts like let's do it so yeah before we knew it pulling out the credit card (laughs) which was nearly close to maxed out playing to hawaii
0: That's unusual for you, mate.
2: Yeah, well, no, I live in the red, mate. I live in the red zone. This is probably the first time I'm in the green zone because through COVID we haven't been able to travel. So just banking it, mate, for for when we can go away again. But uh, yeah, all of a sudden in Hawaii and Jamie was preparing for the Piahi Challenge at a wave called Jaws and probably the most famous big wave in the world. This thing doesn't start really breaking until it's 20 feet. I don't think it's ever maxed out. This wave could hold 100 foot if the conditions started happening. And, um, yeah, it got over there, all the nerves. You know, you get really nervous in these yeah. big waves. It would be like preparing for a race or something. But not only are you going out there trying your best, but your life's on the line because, you know, your, your equipment malfunctions or you make a critical error and you could die because yeah. the waves are so big. But, uh, yeah, flew in the day before. Preparing everything with Jamie, and then got down there in the morning. Swell hadn't really hit, and then it just every set started building. It's like fifteen foot, twenty foot, twenty five foot, and the contest went on hold till about eleven a.m. Jamie's like, "Go, buddy, go! This is yeah. your chance! Like all the cameras are there. This is, yeah, uh, yeah. this is your time to shine." I'm like, "What about you? I'm here to caddy for you." But he's like, no, nope, go!" And then uh, went out, got a couple of really good waves myself. Got absolutely flogged. One of the jet skis that came in to rescue me, actually got rolled by a wave and ended up in the trees just because yeah. when the waves are so big there it rolls pretty much ha- halfway up the cliff right. and into the trees and then the jet ski got rolled through the trees i got rescued by another jet ski and then jamie paddles out for his first heat and i'm like mate i'm so <laughs> sorry i should have been down there carrying boards for you this sort of thing but just really getting to witness what went down at those couple of days at the Piahi challenge if only i could show some people photos of you know some of the big barrels everyone got like 35 40 foot barrels and just being able to give back to a guy who's helped me so much being Jamie and sit in the channel with his spare board because all these guys go through so many boards when they get cleaned Mm -hmm. up by sets or they fall off a wave so pretty much just to be on the sideline of such a great event like that for me was not only one of the highlights of my career but something that i just think i wish everyone could go and experience yeah it would be like i don't know getting a ride in a formula one car or something like that when you get to feel the power of the ocean see what goes on behind the
0: scenes um it's just unbelievable and how people listening they probably don't understand like people probably can you know in a bathtub or pool hold their breath how hard and how long are the hold downs like to hold your breath in you're getting pummeled and belted and you know how tough is that
2: to answer the, probably the second question first, the hold downs aren't that long. People are like, oh, you need to hold your breath for a minute, but it's probably only 10 to 15, 20 seconds is a really long near-death hold down. But it would be like doing a three-minute round of boxing or something like that, And then having to hold your breath when you're at maximum heart rate. And then when you're holding your breath, you can't relax. You've got a jujitsu guy come in and start wrestling (laughs) you. And then, uh, you know, you open your eyes underwater. It's pitch black. Your ears pop because you're so deep. Sometimes you you don't pressurize right and you come up with a blood nose. But the hold downs are not long at all. It's the fatigue that you're going through before the hold down that really sets up Mm. for the, the most painful 15 seconds of your life.
0: Would that been the biggest waves you've ridden at that time? Um, no, I've probably ridden bigger waves, but these waves
2: at Jaws, they're so round and they break so heavy and they're so thick, and it's such a high-performance wave that just to be surfing those waves, you have to put yourself in such a critical situation where some of the bigger waves I've had, you get towed in by a jet ski, you let go of the rope, you've already got all your speed, you don't have to worry about getting to your feet, making yep. a drop, trying to turn a 10 foot board because the tow boards are so small and so much more maneuverable and you're strapped in because you're going so fast so um not the biggest waves i've surfed but definitely probably the scariest and um just the most beautiful at the same time jaws is blue you know you're you're off you know in the deep water off maui um best big wave surfers in the world helicopters buzzing around you know the loudspeaker of the contest mm. 15 boats in the channel with hundreds of people it's just it's an ultimate you know gladiator arena
0: yeah mate it'd be amazing i, I wish i could do it mate it's out, it's out of my level though i think and uh, <laughs> you know i'd love to sit in the channel one day and have a good look at it but uh, yeah mate i i i'm uh Yeah, privileged to uh, have a chat to you about that because it's uh, something I think is amazing because I know how tough and, and how scary that can be.
2: Yeah, definitely. And you've also got to say how well the Hawaiian lifeguards, those guys are specialists at that spot. They'll zoom in there on every wave, pick guys up, pluck them before the rocks and get them back out. So... I could really appreciate that being a lifeguard myself. So, big hats off to the Hawaiian lifeguards.
0: Yeah, mate, the Hawaiians are uh, magnificent what they do over there. Yeah, they're good at everything. (laughs) (laughs) All right, thanks, mate, for uh, popping in. It's a great story and uh, always good to have you in the beach shack. Thanks for having me, mate. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flag.